Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co slash PMC. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. Do me a quick favor. If you like what you hear at Planet Microcap, please take two seconds and give us five stars on Spotify or Apple. This helps with the search engines so that more folks can also discover and engage with all things microcap stocks. Quick note, if you missed any of the content from the Planet Microcap Showcase Vegas, I've uploaded all the keynotes, panels, and webcasts from the event to our YouTube channel. So be sure to check that out. And as I mentioned uh, the last couple of weeks here, our next event will be the Planet Microcap Showcase Vancouver taking place at the Fairmont Waterfront on September 6th and 7, 2023. The website is now open so you can get more information and to register at www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vancouver. My guest on the show today is Garvin J. Bush. He is the co-founder and chief investment officer for Green Alpha Advisors. I had last spoken to Garvin in April 2020, discussing his investing philosophy, then a follow-up panel in August 2020 about why ESG and impact investing are taking center stage at that time. It's been three years. Suffice it to say, a lot has changed since then across the board, as well as the conversation around ESG and impact investing. You might be hearing this and thinking that you're about to listen to a full-on ESG podcast. Sure, we discussed the changing discourse around ESG impact investing, but what I found most fascinating is our discussion around the intersectionality of trends and sectors, which is starting to take center stage in sustainability investing. Thank you again for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Garvin J. Bush. Garvin, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Hey, Bobby, I'm doing well. Really good to see you again, man. Absolutely. It's been a few years. Yeah, oh, just about three three years and change by my count. So uh, uh, I guess we were we were due for, for a chat. I love it. We definitely were, man. And yeah, like we that the first conversation we had, we put that out um, late April 2020. Wow. Mm. What a time. And then uh, and then we also did that panel, too, for one of our virtuals. I think I think that was late or like August, 2020 and stuff. And, you know, to give folks a little back, you know, um, Garvin is my ESG guy. All right. So I hope, I hope you're still listening, you know, um, <laughs> but I, it's, it's, it's important to better understand because like at the end of the day, like ESG is not going away, but the conversation around it has really morphed, like really morphed. Uh, in the last three years. Uh, I, I think he, that's still an understatement. So, you know, I, I figured, Garvin, let's start there. You know, we're, we're recording this uh, Friday, May uh, 19th, you know, about mid-May 2023. You know, how do you think the general investing is thinking about ESG right now? And let, let's start there. That's a really interesting question, Bobby. And wow, I'm not sure what the general... and. and... There's there's several answers to that question. I guess I'll just start from the top from from green from green office perspective. So as you know, we do get we're focused on sustainability. We put together portfolios of the companies that we think are the what we call the next economy. We call our philosophy and our thesis next economics, and then the practical application next economy portfolio theory uh, for a couple of reasons. One, we wanted to make it distinct from from the present day uh, uh, approach to modern portfolio theory, which we think has some limitations, although some some value too still, uh, but also to distinguish ourselves from ESG. 
we we do get categorized along with ESG because we do focus on our idea of a next economy, which we define as a sustainable economy. So a lot of advisors and institutions and, and clients uh, will will kind of put us in the ESG category. But here's why we have never called ourselves ESG uh, internally or in any of our marketing materials or on our website. And, and that's because we find ESG to be just a little too nebulous. It doesn't seem to mean much uh, for, you know, I don't know how many ESG funds and ETFs there are now, but it's in the hundreds, if not, you know, in the thousands by now. And you, and you can't find any two of them that have extremely similar methodologies, meaning ESG is so wide open, it, it, it lacks definition and therefore it lacks specificity. And, and therefore, I, I think the whole concept lacks depth. And I and I, I feel like we owe it to all of our clients to be very specific about what we're trying to achieve and not just give it some vanilla ESG wrapper. So we, we, we shy away from the whole ESG label, although, sure, if a given, you know, financial advisor that uses uses our ETF, you know, for his or her clients, uh, want, you know, wants to represent us as being ESG, it does fit. We, we lean a little more heavily on the E uh, than the S or the G because we think that's where the value is. Uh, uh, although S, S and G are surely important, but those have always, especially G have always been important in terms of stock picking, even before E was, was a major concern. So, uh, so we don't call ourselves ESG, even though we do get lumped there. So that's one key designation. We, we focus on the next economy. I put together portfolios of companies that I think are, are representative of the largest, of what are going to be the largest, most important entities and businesses in the world 10 years hence. So we're, we're, we're buy and hold long-term, long only uh, uh, strategies. And and what I think is going to happen with the best of those picks is as they gain market share away from the less excellent mousetraps and away from the, from the less efficient, less productive legacy economy predecessors of whatever it is that they do, they're going to just gain market share and therefore grow revenues and therefore get operating leverage and therefore expand margins and therefore grow over time as they just steal market share away from their from their earlier competitors. And therefore our portfolios will just compound over time. And so this is our vision and it's not strictly ESG. Now I'll, I'll pause there and let you follow up, but then I will, I'm more than happy to dive right into what I, what I do see going on with mainstream ESG right now. Let's go there first, because I do want to follow up on the idea of next economy where, you know, portfolio allocation on that front but let's yeah. go let's go there first so that we can knock it out so that you know because i'm sure everybody very much appreciated your answer in how let, let's let's keep going on that because i think that yeah. I, th- I really want to hear your thoughts there well cool and, and i hope that gives you some appreciation for why i don't really want to be labeled esg i i, I don't think it means much i so and- appreciate that by the way like that's that's super interesting uh, well cool thanks and uh and, and that kind of leads me to the this whole um, ESG getting caught up in the culture wars thing. Uh, I, I, I find it interesting because it, it, it does just seem a little bit like performative uh, political theater uh, to me because given my belief, and, and I think I can objectively show that it's true just given the disparate, disparate nature of the funds that call themselves ESG, that it doesn't actually mean much. I'm not exactly sure what the culture backlash is even about. Like you can find, uh, uh, okay, so I've heard it. I've heard it say by some of the by some of the critics of ESG uh, that well, it's it's a it's an attempt to ban fossil fuels. Well, no, you can find tons of ESG funds that are stuffed with fossil fuels, uh, and and all kinds of things that I would consider not especially uh, important parts of a sustainable economy. Uh, but you know, all you need to do is look at the biggest ESG ETF in the nation right now. That's BlackRock's. Uh, ETF, and you can see fossil fuels in there. You can see uh, things like legacy farming practices in there, including you know pesticides and herbicides and things that that a sustainability manager wouldn't be that interested in. Uh, in effect, a, a lot of ESG funds aren't that different from underlying ESG funds. They might be very minimally uh, modified to remove, uh, to not even to really remove names all the time either, but just to maybe dial up or down the weightings on more or less sustainable companies and then just throw an ESG wrapper on it. So it's not even clear to me, other than just performatively to score politically points, what the ESG backlash is all about, because those portfolios, by and large, aren't dissimilar from just your run-of-the-mill index fund to start with. Uh, so saying that ESG is some sort of a campaign against fossil fuels is just wrong. There's there's ESG uh, funds that have all kinds of fossil fuels or or anything else a given a given uh, person might be in support of and not, and not object to. But more than that, Bobby, 
I find the whole idea of, of telling your constituents what instruments they can and cannot buy uh, just to be anti-capitalist. For, for the markets to do their thing, for efficient markets to do their thing, uh, allocators from individual investors up to the biggest institutions have to be free to choose whatever it is they want to invest in. If that is, uh, you know, a fossil fuel sector fund, great. If that's a fossil free, you know, uh, innovation focused ETF like mine, great. But that's how markets are supposed to work. That's what Adam Smith had in mind with the invisible hand, right? Assets are supposed to chase the most effective return on assets, uh, uh, securities that they can find. And if you just take some of those assets off the board and don't make them possible, how's the market supposed to do its thing? It's a little bit like the invisible hand is short circuited and you can only buy what a, a list of approved stocks uh, that that aren't in some sort of political backlash. Capital markets aren't supposed to work that way. And and, you know, for for capitalist, uh, uh, you know, ideologues, which theoretically uh, bridges the political divide between right and left. And we're all, you know, in this country, we're all supposed to be capitalist. Goodness knows I am I'm a fund manager, for goodness sake. I think if capital allocators don't have every option open to them, then how is capital going to find its best and highest use, right? So the whole idea of banning a fund, even one that I might completely object to as spurious or, or frivolous, is crazy. Uh, uh, allocators should have every opportunity to check out everything they want and then make their own choice. In other words, Government should not be in the position of telling me what to buy. That drives me a little bit crazy. I I can hear the applause and the the standing ovation in the, <laughs> in the back right now uh, for everything that you just said. I don't really have a follow up. I just completely agree with literally everything you said because it also harkens back to what we talk about on the show all the time. That investing is a personal journey. You know, everybody invests differently. Everybody has a, you know, yeah, there's overlap in certain styles. That's why we categorize, you know, various different ways of philosophies and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, like, you know, there might be a portfolio out there that has, you know, uh, you know, everything from, you know, fossil fuels to to not, you know, and that just is really all totally dependent on who you are as an investor. And it really cannot be up to the government to say like, all right, well, these, this is now your approved ESG list. It is important to have the scores out there. I think there's actually a lot of value in that sense. You know, like full disclosure, like one of our sponsors for our other show is Social Suite. They do, they have an ESG platform for public companies to help them, mm -hmm. you know, have a piece of paper that shows investors like here's where we are at from an ESG perspective on environmental social governance. And I think there's can be a lot of value in that, you know, depending on what your, uh, the allocator investing strategy is when you're assessing that company. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, like you, we cannot have governments in there saying like, you know, no, these companies like that just we just cannot have that. No, I couldn't agree more uh, with your former point. And that is that uh, uh, ratings and rankings and data and information. These are all good. The more information an investor can bring to bear on any decision, the better. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I would caution against over reliance on any one source. Uh, no disrespect sure. to any sponsor of yours. I'm sure no, they're, they're no doubt. that's fine. Perfectly excellent data sources, uh, but to really think things through and, and maybe triangulate a handful of data sources. And then beneath that, uh, you know, if you're considering a fund or an ETF or what have you, you know, get a hold of their most recent annual or semi-annual and just look through the holdings for yourself and see if if you agree with that's the that's the basket of stocks that you wanted to own, right? Go go past the rating and go past, you know, their their marketing copy and just look at the holdings. And see if, you know, do, do I agree that this is a portfolio that's likely to appreciate going forward? Are these constituent companies that that I concur are, are the growth avenues of the future? Uh, that's harder for the non-specialist, I know. But I still think it's educational to, just to look under the hood and, and see exactly what you own beyond, you know, the ticker of the ETF. I certainly encourage everyone to do that with my ETF. You know? Absolutely. Hey, so one quick, just getting back to the how the conversation about ESG has really changed since me and you last talked, you know, in 2020, yeah. it's really changed a lot. And do you think that's more symptomatic of like, all right, everyone's kind of, you know, we heard about ESG, but now we're in this environment from a macro perspective of like, hey, interest, you know, we're not in zero interest rate environment anymore. You know, we're interest rates are now whatever, you know, what they are, they've grown faster than they ever have in history. You know, there's potential looming in recession, you know, like I know just from talking with issuers, sometimes that they're just like, ESG, I, I'm just trying to keep the lights on right now. Like, give, give me a, give me a freaking break, you know? So love to hear from your perspective, how that conversation is, how it has changed. 
Well, yeah, no, three three years, you know, the most recent three years have been like any previous 10, right? It's been like the, the zeitgeist has changed uh, so much. I do hear exactly what you just said. Uh, I And I don't hear only that. I hear different variations of it. Uh, I've never had so many allocators as just in the last few months tell me they've got such a high proportion allocated to cash. Uh, and they're all trying yeah. to figure out when is the optimal time to call a bottom. And I know that worm is going to turn at some point because meanwhile, inflation means their cash is losing value and they hate that just as much, right? So everybody's a little bit stressed out on when to like re-engage with markets, especially in in uh, names that are that are considered more growthy, more growth oriented names. These have been cyclically out of favor because of the high risk environment for a while now. I mean, at least for all of 2022 and with some nice exceptions here and there, uh, part of 2023 as well. Uh, and and so uh, uh, we, we don't probably need to, to list the factors, but yeah, rising rates, potentially looming recession, which as Scott Galloway says, has been 30 days away for about a year and a half now. So who knows? <laughs> Yeah. Um, I know he, he always has a good zinger. I, I, I enjoy his pot as well. Um, but uh, then, of course, you know, conflict in Europe. Uh, then, of course, uh, the climate crisis itself, which seems to present a new challenge uh, every day. Uh, so uh, the macro environment is big and daunting and gnarly. Oh, and then how about we might default on the debt ceiling, uh, which which is a little bit crazy and would totally tailspin the whole global economy and, and would undermine U.S. competitiveness I'm sure you've heard this a million times, but, you know, with the world increasingly looking for a backup reserve currency, I don't think it's properly appreciated how much benefit we get out of the dollar being the world's reserve currency. It's literally trillions of dollars a year in, in, a, in a free spot for us to invest in whatever we want to. And we have been using that liberally since, you know, Bretton Woods. <laughs> so I, I, I'm a little bit loath to default on our debt, get, uh, get our debt downgraded. And then what? The world starts to think more about the euro or the yuan. As the reserve currency, uh, that's a scary world for us. That's where we lose a lot of GDP. Uh, and I'm a little bit surprised it's Republicans that are doing this brinkmanship because uh, the last thing they want to do is cede some advantage to China. That would be a horrible, like, unforced error for us to commit. And so there's that overhang, too, which is making people say, damn, I better sit in cash for a minute. Yeah. So who knows what the catalyst will be that will make that worm turn and bring a little bit more of a risk on appetite back if the debt uh, uh, debt crisis, debt ceiling crisis be, gets resolved pretty soon. That would surely take off some of the overhang. I would expect to see a rally that day. But how long would that how long lived would that rally be? Right. Very, very hard to say. OK, so to ac actually answer your question, Bobby, and bring all that in to, to the realm of ESG. Dude, you nailed it. This is why I don't. One of the reasons why I don't especially want to be ESG. So when I have conversation with a gatekeeper, an allocator, you know, a corner office advisor or, you know, the chair of some family office, whoever it may be, uh, the conversation I have with them is, well, OK. I only really talk to entities with long horizons because that's who we're appropriate for. And I'll say, OK, Mr. Be. I don't know, university endowment, you have a perpetual horizon. Um, is it? too soon to get into these what I think are a hand-picked selection of the best building blocks of the next economy? Maybe, but I know for sure it isn't too late. We're, we're near or maybe even at the bottom of the cycle. And, uh, and if you've got a perpetual horizon, it, it's time to, to start thinking about it. And because and the catalyst is that's going to bring risk on back, which inevitably happens, uh, even after 2008, when people were scared to death we 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 had a we had a rebound rally that was pretty spectacular uh, af after that. So that day is coming. It's just when. So uh, are you worried about being too soon? Maybe, but I know for sure that today isn't too late, right? So without being able to predict the future, which of course is fund fundamentally unknowable, I can be very confident in that assertion. It's not too late to catch the next rally, although it might be a little bit too soon for the bottom. But there's no telling. So my advice to them is start allocating. You know. A hundred percent. And, you know, at the end of the day, like you talked about that in our last in, in uh, when we did our podcast in April uh, 2020, where, you know, at the end of the day, um, it's it, it especially if you have that long term horizon, you know, that I mean, for you guys, 10 years out. You know, you kind of have to shrug your shoulders, right, and just be like, OK, well, the real bet there is that. All right. Well, is Garvin right that the portfolio he's putting together 
are the building blocks for this next economy? That's then the <laughs> next question that they have to ask, right? <laughs> so for you, I mean, has that changed at all since we last spoke three years ago? And if not, you know, maybe as a refresher, what in your opinion are some of those building blocks for the next economy? You you can name companies if you want, but it's, it's up to you. Sure. More well, trends. Uh, sure. <laughs> maybe I'll start at the sector level. I don't know. Uh, once, once I get speaking, I don't really know necessarily. I'm, I'm a little bit I blacked out, man. I blacked out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like uh, I, I, uh, my word selection is just basically a prediction of what word should be next. No, uh, <laughs> yeah, like GPT-4 a little bit. But uh, um, well, I do have a high degree of confidence that uh, most of the stocks in our basket, and I, I can't say all because, my goodness, that, that would just visibly be a lie and, and contrary to, you know, how the universe works. But... But I do have a very high degree of confidence that most of our picks are the building blocks of the next economy. And I can talk a little bit about our methodology for, for how we, we do our best to uh, arrive at our, our most confident decisions there. Um, but the part of your question where you asked, has that changed? Well, thesis level, no. We look for the intersection of innovation Ideally, where more than one innovation is at a is at a confluence point where they are boosting each other and therefore really making dramatic progress. So uh, I just put up a, a short post on LinkedIn about the confluence of AI and biotech. That's that's one enormously powerful one. But there's uh, there's examples all around the economy of of one or more uh, you know forward leading innovations intersecting to really create dynamic change. Uh, this is a little bit scary for some investors because a lot of the stocks involved are volatile. Uh, but but uh, my position is that that only matters for the short-term investor. Uh, that kind of short-term volatility only matters if you might need to exit real soon. If you're here for five years, I always tell people, don't don't buy my my securities, my, my various vehicles, if you're not interested in at least five years, uh, because that's the time frame over which I think these, these companies' growth uh, are going to compound in a way that the market can't ignore you know i think it was either uh, it was one of the famous old-timey investors buffett or graham one of those guys uh you know said that in the long run the, the i'm sure you know this one the, the market's a value weighing machine but in the short run it's a drunken idiot like that's true and so it, you know you could get caught on a down cycle if if you hold any anything that's forward looking like what we do uh for for the short term so where it changes, though, is, is uh, my assimilation of all of the most current information, which really I, I view as my job, assimilate and apply as much as I can. Assimilate information, apply it, assimilate, apply it, and then, and then sometimes regurgitate it, you know, like in forums like this, right? Uh, that's really my job. And so the more we learn, the more that helps us evolve what we think the key building blocks of the next economy are. So for a long time, I'm going to say right up until about 2018, we weren't interested in pharma or biotech. Uh, it hadn't been providing much in the way of radical innovation. It's a little bit hard to understand. So it takes a while to get to the bottom of what of what those companies do. Uh, and there were other uh, impediments like uh, like some of them being a little bit more abundant in their approach to treating things. And I, I just didn't see the step change innovation that was going to change the world. Suddenly, you know, companies like Moderna and CRISPR Therapeutics, both holdings, uh, and BioNTech in Germany, a holding of ours, uh, started really showing me what they were going to be capable of. And I'm going to I'm going to dovetail this a little bit with our methodology in in uh, having confidence that we do own the pieces of the next economy. So, if something's capable of step change, complete function overhaul of how their part of the economy works, one. Two, if that change is in the service of solving some economic risk, uh, and then uh, three, if it's very economically competitive, and then on, kind of on the buy discipline side, if I can get it at a good price, these are that's the Venn diagram intersection uh, that I'm really looking for. So for the longest time, biotech didn't tick all those, and I just wasn't there. Um, then starting in late 18, I could see a company like Moderna. Well, they've got this great idea, not proven yet. They were still, they were still pre-revenue and way pre-earnings, but I could see that they own this huge intellectual property estate and along with BioNTech, uh, by far the two leaders on earth, uh, for owning the IP for how to use messenger RNA 
to affect the phenotypic change in an organism such that it can fight a disease or in the case of a vaccine, resist it. And it was clear to me that, it, so as a general rule, I think whoever owns the IP for how to do something, especially something very dramatically impactful like that, uh, the value in the markets always, always rolls up to the owner of the intellectual property, right? So this is the first check you have to do on something innovative. Check their IP estate, check it against their peers and competitors, and see who really is the top dog, who's the global leader. Uh, back Way back in 18, I thought with Moderna, probably the worst outcome for me is they're not going to be able to have a commercial product. They're going to struggle to get it together and bring something to market. And what will happen is somebody else will buy that IP. And at worst, I'll have a break-even stock. But, but if they manage to leverage that IP like to do something dramatic like thwart a pandemic or they're working on other interesting things such as uh, individualized cancer cures. Um, if they bring any of those to fruition, this thing is going to compound like crazy. And that is, in fact, what happened. I didn't see, of course, the pandemic coming. So I couldn't see that catalyst coming from Moderna. But geez, that was, I think, a 50x return because when we first bought it, people were telling me, you're crazy. And I said, well, no, they own something transformative for the global economy and they own, the, they own most of the IP around it. There's, it's very hard for me to see how there isn't value there. So then it's a question of evaluating the management team and do they have the wherewithal to pull off the getting through the so-called valley of death from pre-rev to rev to earnings. Uh, and the, the, the management team uh, at Moderna did have a proven track record doing that. So I thought it was a pretty safe bet, but the market considered it quite speculative. Uh, I actually had a couple of advisors tell me, wait a minute, you put what in there? You know, they're still pre-revs. And I said, yeah, but look at their IP estate. So this is one way that you that you help convince yourself that you really do own the pieces of the next economy. Where's the economy going? What's going to work phenomenally well and, and really change the world? And then who owns the rights to flex that? Man, we have a lot of different rabbit holes to go down from everything what you said. But I want to I want to compound <laughs> on what you said. Well, I want to compound on what you said because you know it's pretty easy in these interviews like these. Like, okay, well, what are the sectors that are the next economy? I mean, I literally just asked that. But now. Having learned from what you just said, my follow-up to that would be what I what I really appreciate that you just said is the idea of the intersectionality between some of these trends and that now starting to kind of be a lot more interesting. For example, you know, the article you talked about how, you know, the intersection of AI with biotech. I mean, you kind of do AI with like almost everything right now. Right? That's true. <laughs> In many respects. I guess you say AI being the main thing, but then how that's kind of branching off into a, a couple other things too. You know, so that that's actually really interesting too when you're thinking, you know, five, 10 years down the road of like, all right, well, how will this sector now be changed as a result of this new innovation, right? So that seems okay. to be something that folks should probably think about more if you're if you're really thinking more long-term. Yeah. If you think short term, I would recommend not doing that because on, on a given day to day basis, a lot of these stocks are incredibly volatile. Now, we leverage that to our advantage when they have a particularly bad day, but I don't see any intrinsic valuation change from my point of view. Uh, for me, that's that's the day to go and get some, right? For anybody that's got a short time horizon, especially if you're a day trader, holding those things is going to be tricky, tricky, tricky because, you know, in the case of a, so one of my other favorites, and, and this can hit more than one of those rabbit holes is uh, caribou biosciences uh, holding uh, asterisk. <laughs> and um, uh, they uh, have a really innovative uh, approach to uh, applying uh, messenger RNA and uh, CRISPR gene editing to develop therapeutics for different maladies. They are working on cancer. Uh, they've recently had uh, really encouraging results in, uh, in lymphoma where uh, at six months, six of six dosed patients had complete response. Pretty remarkable, right? And yet this is still pre-revenue. It's not in the clinic yet. It isn't approved by any regulatory body yet. Uh, but what they do, they call it, um, they call it, uh, they call their approach uh, uh, Chardonnay, uh, which is uh, CRISPR, uh, CRISPR DNA, uh, CRISPR RNA DNA hybrid approach, which somehow fits together into the acronym Chardonnay, uh, run by a very bright CEO, Rachel Horowitz, founded uh, by Jennifer Doudna, who gets to license the IP to Caribou because she was the discoverer, along with Emmanuel Charpentier, she was the discoverer of CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing technology, for which she won the Nobel Prize, right? So she owns that IP. She gets to flex it however she wants. And she has decided to found Caribou Biosciences. Okay. So... 
that this company now is where Moderna was back in 18. They haven't proven anything. They haven't sold anything in the clinic yet. Uh, they're still in phase one trials on, on their best ideas. But wow, they own the IP for how to use that idea. And they have very encouraging phase one results. So this is very encouraging for the long-term investor. You can see, you can imagine without too much, you know, brain busting, you know, a future in 10 years where there's an off, you know, if not an off the shelf, uh, a relatively accessible uh, cancer therapeutic that blows away chemo. You know, chemo sucks. It, it, it extends patients' lives by a year maybe, uh, but it doesn't save really anybody. And, and what we're talking about now is what I'm, is this thing I constantly harp on in whatever sector we're on biotech right now, but that, that just has this transformative step change in how the economy works. And, and, and again, uh, the second tailwind is if it's solving some big risk, in this case, the massive human disease burden. You know, if we took the overhang of, of cancer out the world, I don't know how many trillions that would add to GDP, but it would be a big, big deal. Not that dissimilar, but switching to biotech, they're doing something uh, interesting that is totally AI dependent. Uh, and, and, then there's, and then there's another uh, aspect of that, which is genomic sequencing, which is key and is also AI dependent. So, so here's, a, here's a triple confluence, right? There's gene editing, there's fast, rapid, cheap sequencing uh, of genes, which uh, companies like uh, Pacific Biosciences, asterisk, a holding, uh, provide uh, the machines and, and the consumables that the machines run on. And then uh, finally, the AI to do it all in a way that a human could never have done. So in the case of BioNTech, uh, their approach to developing a cancer therapeutic is um, is to biopsy a patient. So these are personalized, is to biopsy a patient's tumor and then take a biopsy of healthy tissue and then compare the two. So of the tens of thousands of positions on the human genome sequence, uh, a cancer cell will only differ from a patient's healthy host cell by between 12 and 20 positions. So it really is a needle in a haystack to look for, for exactly what is different with the cancer cell and letting it run wild and, and potentially eventually kill the patient. So their idea is, and, and with good early success, especially in the animal models, has been to compare these two biopsies, so to put these biopsies through the sequencer, figure out exactly what each one is made of, then you sick the AI on finding the dozen differences in the tens of thousands of, of positions. Well, you know, a human researcher with a microscope would probably take 20 years to do that. The AI can do it in a matter of minutes. That's what it's really good at, grabbing data and crunching it together, right? So then having identified, say, the dozen differences between the healthy cell and the cancer cell, uh, they go to work using mRNA to program the patient's immune system to only look for those 12 differences and send our immune systems like the killer T cells or the NK cells, send those after only cells with those 12 differences and kill them. And they've uh, achieved really dramatic results in, in early testing, but without cheap rapid sequencing, without AI to crunch the differences and without gene editing in order to make the change in, in the RNA to, to affect that therapeutic, none of that's happening. Which, damn, Bobby, by the way, I can now talk about the confluence with like TSMC without their leadership pioneering five and three nanometer nodes for the most advanced chips that are actually capable of pulling off that level of AI. None of this is happening, right? So like the confluences innovation all around the world are really dramatic right now for the better. And yes, I know there's a lot of worries about AI being being bad for the worse, and that's a thing, maybe. But, but for the better, wow, I can really see that world and I can see the building blocks that are bringing it to bear. Speaking of that, upstream from TSM, you've got ASML, the only company capable of making the etching machine uh, fine enough to do a three nanometer chip in the world. I don't think it's probably appreciated how much of our miraculous new world is, is all dependent on this one company in the Netherlands that makes this etching machine with the extreme ultraviolet. So these things all play together and it's these confluences. So now we've, now we've brought in machine tooling and foundries, right? But they're all the confluences of the next, of, of the really brilliant technologies that are pulling together the next economy. Man. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, everything that you just said, like that, that's truly a great example of how all of that is working together. You know, one thing I was thinking the whole time as well, when you were going through caribou and then the intersectionality there is, you know, also when you're thinking, you know, 10 years out on like, okay, we're looking for companies that do fit this criteria that we want, you know, what is that threshold then to sell? You know, most, most mm. often, you know, most often everyone's like, you know, okay, if the thesis changes a little bit, but you know, in some of these growthy names, like it's kind of hard to really, you know, like you, you got to give them time to even get to the point where they've, they can change a thesis if possible. Right. Yeah. So, 
So, I mean, for you, you know, what is that threshold to sell? Like, okay, you know what, this company, I, I don't think they're now going, they're actually are going to be solving one of these problems or, or they're no longer part of this Venn diagram that we've made for ourselves. Yeah. And that does occur. You know, we try to be extremely careful up front and buy things that, that do have longevity. And again, most of that's around IP ownership, right? Because that can take 10, 20, 30 years to expire, depending on exactly what kind it is. Uh, but still, the world changes very rapidly. And we might buy something that was a dramatic leader in one area. Uh, and then five years later, it's been overrun by the next uh, smart innovation. So I think the first, there's a couple of there's a couple of answers to your question on different levels, right? The first is uh, potential technological obsolescence. Um, and if if we uh, if we feel like a, a global leader, which we always we always want to own, because again, that's where the value rolls up. It's who's doing it best, almost always. Uh, and then maybe the fast follower gets a bunch of it too. Um, so if uh, a given technology is getting supplanted by something better still. That's a trigger for us. Um, generally, we want to hold for a long period of time because we believe that the leaders are going to just compound and, and we want to be there for that compounding. Uh, so, you know, our turnover uh, traditionally uh, in, in our strategies will be 10, 15 percent in a given year. Uh, sometimes I, I joke that that strategies that have three, four hundred percent turnover must not have done the research that well the first time around they felt the need to turn over their portfolio 4x in a given year uh that's a little that's a little bit flippant but i kind of do feel that way um the other thing that can happen though um is if a company is a good enough idea and the broad market catches on to that uh they can become super overvalued on occasion right now that's not really a concern in any growth names but at the end of 2020 it was you know Growth names were so in favor for 19 and 20 that the strategy that we run in our ETF now, NXTE, shameless plug, um, you know, was up 50% in 19 and 113% in 20. And I was getting very nervous about a handful of the valuations at one point, NVIDIA, which speaking of AI, designs so many of those chips that then in turn TSMC makes in their fabs, uh, was trading at 30x 2030 revenues, not earnings. And I just saw it. 30x, 2030 revs, that is overvalued by anybody's definition. I'm terrified of this thing right now. Uh, and so as a result of that runoff, though, it had also become kind of overweight in our strategies. So even though I love NVIDIA and the innovation there, it was one, overvalued. Two, because it had run so far so much, it was super overweight in our strategies. And uh, it, it, it hurts me a little bit to sell a global leader like that, but when it presents two much of a, of a of a risk at the portfolio level, you have to trim. I won't say I got rid of it completely, yeah. but you know, I brought it from eight, you know, it had grown itself up to being like seven, 8% of the strategy. So we we would trim it back on down to a much more reasonable 3% where even if it gets hit back on its valuation, we're not gonna suffer unduly. So that's another reason. Um, and then uh, M&A is the other reason. Uh, something might get bought by a company that we don't think is an aggregate contributing to us to a solution to de-risking the global economy, which is how we think of sustainability, by the way, is this is almost an aside, but not really. It also sort of answers your question. Is a company on a daily basis in aggregate as as uh, determined by looking at how they get paid? What's their source of revenue? Uh, is it doing more to de-risk the global economy or more to pile risk on to the global economy? Uh, I think companies that what, intentionally or unintentionally are doing more to de-risk the global economy are just going to accrue more value over time because increasingly, especially around the climate crisis, although also disease burdens, as we've been discussing so far, and other things too, though, resource degradation, other risks, uh, every entity from individuals all the way up to nation states are increasingly falling all over themselves to find the smartest, best examples of these solutions. So if somebody's really innovative, if they're changing the way the economy works, if they're in confluence with another brilliant innovation, and if all those are in the service of de-risking the global economy, that's a sweet spot. I, This is gonna sound like an overreach, but I almost feel like most of those names can't help but grow into the future. And you need to be in front of them as they experience that expansion, but it also requires a long-term time horizon. But yeah, the sell strategy is tech obsolescence, Overvalued slash overweight in a given strategy, uh, M&A with an entity that we don't think is de-risking the global economy, or sometimes they just go private. 
Very good. And real quick on NVIDIA, just so it's clear, you still own in some of the strategies? Asterisk, still holding. <laughs> cool. So another question I want to ask, because we, we talked about this actually a little bit earlier, and you know, for the most part, I, I mean, I, I'm sure it's not all your names, but there's a good amount of them that are probably more growthy in nature. So there's clearly a balance sheet risk here right now. Um, you know, you know, looking at the world economy, you know, folks that are doing everything they can to, you know, cut costs and, you know, or unfortunately, you know, employment layoffs, you know, just doing everything that they got to do just to continue to survive and hopefully eventually thrive. You know, so how do you think about balance sheet risk, especially right now where there's going to be a lot, almost every growth name is, is raised capital? Yeah. Uh, one thing we've always been very careful about, I'm very fortunate that my co-founder and uh, co-portfolio manager, Jeremy Deems, uh, maybe you should talk to him sometime too, because it'd be a similar conversation, but he'll bring a different perspective. For sure. uh, he he likes to say he's he's full time PM and, and CFO for us now, so he led a CPA lapse. He likes to he likes to joke he's a recovering CPA, but he's a, he's he's a forensic accountant. And so one of the things that's always been at the top of our stack from the bottom up. So so far we've mostly been talking about the thematic uh, stock selection, but then there's also the fundamental evaluation, which is equally important part, even though we haven't really hit on it much today. Uh, and so we think of that as the bottom up analysis. Once it, once a company qualifies from the top down, it then doesn't just go into a portfolio. It then qualifies for the bottom up and the fundamentals. And that's where Jeremy really shines and, and really helps with the stock selection. So one thing he's always insisted on and me too is that, uh, management teams, uh, are demonstrating themselves to be excellent and prudent custodians of capital. So we've always shied away from companies that do too much buybacks uh, when that could be going onto their balance sheet, especially we're not indiscriminately like death to all buybacks, uh, especially when buybacks are used for employee comp. Uh, we like that uh, when buybacks uh, occur and the company puts those shares on their balance sheet. That's OK. Uh, that, that's probably just a war chest for future M&A. That's probably a good thing. Uh, where we object is where, and this is just an example of custodianship of capital. Like it doesn't, it's not really a buyback conversation, but, but, uh, when companies just buy back their shares and then just retire them, but essentially put a match to them, I just think, wow, that, where could that have been used to shore up the balance sheet, to have a, a better Altman Z score, to have a better credit rating, to get their cost of capital down to, uh, if not that, uh, not have to do layoffs of key people to in invest more in R&D because we love innovation uh, to build, uh, you know, in the case of like, let's say a solar energy company to build a new fab to make more panels to grow the intrinsic value of the company because now you've got a greater potential stack of revenue. Like all these things are so important. And if, and if a management team isn't very thoughtful with their custodianship of capital, we pass. Meaning even though we do have a bunch of growth names, we have for the most part, the ones that have been super careful with that, because when the tide goes out, you see you swimming naked, like old man Buffett said, right? And so now that the tide is out, yes, our growth fee companies are caught in that downdraft as well. We we did have a tough 2022 performance wise, uh, you know, in the history of, of the strategy that that is in our ETF, uh, it's had three years of pretty bad underperformance. It's about it's a little over ten years old now, but about seven years of outperformance. That's just. You know, we're high active share. We don't care about correlating with the benchmark and we're chasing absolute returns, not not bench adjusted returns. Right. And so when that's when you're agnostic to your benchmark, that's just the deal. And I think if I can keep outperforming seven out of 10 years, that's awesome for the long term shareholder. Right. So if you came in right at the beginning of 2022 and you sell now, you're down. If you came in when we launched the thing 10 years ago, you're still way up. And uh, and this is the, the nature uh, of that kind of investing. So even though, and here's here's your answer. So even though our growth names have been caught in this downdraft, this, I don't know, flight to value, flight to safety or quality or whatever people are calling it if you flip on the financial news, um, the names we hold are the ones most likely to survive the downdraft and then come up swinging on the other side uh, because they're the ones that are in the safest and best position are the ones that rally soonest and fastest. And we've seen that in the last two recoveries that we've now been through. Absolutely. 
All right, so Garvin, I, I think we've covered pretty much everything in terms of, you know, sustainability, everything going on. But I figured my final question for you, because we asked this, um, again, you know, harpening back to our, our first interview that we did together in April 2020. But we talked about the, the politics of sustainability at that time. And now, because the world is so drastically different than it was, you know, even just three years ago, love to hear your opinion on how you feel the politics of sustainability has changed. And then also moving forward now for the rest of 2023 going into 2024. I think it's increasingly hard to ignore. I think even if you're a culture warrior, you're worried about sea level rise, you're worried about air pollution, you're worried about... So I think if we leave the politics out of it and look at it for what it is. I had another recent post that was like, well, if you look at what scientists are saying, you can see how asset management has to evolve. And it has nothing to do with politics. I personally attempt to be apolitical. Um, I know that isn't the real world, but unfortunately, but uh, I think that increasingly, whether something's labeled ESG or not, uh, ultimately the invisible hand does work. And, the most interesting solutions to our problems, especially, and this is why we only own these, where that solution is very economically competitive with the, you know, less sustainable way of doing that part of the economy, just, you know, wind being being uh, less risky uh, for the global economy than coal. And, oh, and guess what? It only costs half as much per kilowatt hour. Okay, so that's just one really easy, and solar is cheaper still, right? So that's just one really easy example. So I think that if you're, if you're wise, you pick the confluence of companies that are lowering global economic risks, but doing so in a way that is more economically competitive than whatever part of the economy that it plays in, than its competitors that are increasing global systemic risks. Uh, I think as long as you're cautious with that, it doesn't matter what you label it. I think money will chase those assets because they work and because they're more beneficial. Like it, if I could just just to cite an example, you know, if you're a big public utility and you've got the option of buying your next gigawatt of power that you need from a coal plant, but they're going to need to charge you five cents a kilowatt hour because that's what it costs to mine coal and ship it across the country and shovel it into a boiler and spin the boiler. Or if you're going to buy it at one penny a kilowatt hour from a solar farm, because all they had to do was put up the panels and then there's no cost for the fuel ever again. Well, you know, if you're a utility, you've got a legislative monopoly. You you uh, you get to charge your ratepayers whatever you get to charge them. Here, where I live, it's about 22 pennies uh, during peak. And so, you know, do you want to keep the margin between a nickel and 22 pennies, or do you want to pocket the margin between a penny and 22 pennies? Well, I know what the utility is going to choose almost every time where they can. And the fact that additionally, buying from the solar form farm means you're lowering global economic risk. Uh, makes it that much more beneficial. And not only that, the utility is going to endure a lot of goodwill for making that call. And uh, I, and I just don't see the world going any other way. And so sector by sector, but that was just an energy example, but we already talked about biotech. I, you know, we could talk about transportation. We could talk any sector you want, because ultimately every sec sector has to have the better, uh, less risk-creating mousetrap. Um, I just think that the best ideas ultimately float to the top, irrespective of the hand-waving that goes on politically. And what the political environment does, and as well as the overall macro environment in a different way, uh, it causes short-term volatility around a lot of these names. And th again, that is really terrifying for the short-term holder, but for a long-term strategist, like we try to be at Green Alpha, what that does is present opportunity. If the markets are short-sighted enough, that sounded a little bit pejorative, but it's just kind of true, if the markets are short-sighted enough to dramatically sell something off that has fantastic long-term intrinsic value, that's just payday for me. I love it. Uh, we just back up the truck on that day. Uh, let me let me cite semis there. S semis, really. I'm not talking about trucks now. Computer chips. <laughs> um, semis, you know, they're cyclical as hell. Everybody knows that. Uh, right now, they've been in, in a downdraft because, you know, Apple reports that they sold 40% fewer MacBooks uh, during Q1 than they did in the previous Q1 because of whatever pandemic pull forward of demand or whatever. Uh, and so everybody's like, well, you better sell off, you know, all, all the chip makers and the chip equipment makers, ASML, uh, uh, oh yeah, holding, um, LAM research holding, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, well, 
we know damn well that in the long term, chips and especially more and more advanced chip sales and revenues are doing nothing but going up and to the right. We live in an age of data proliferation and things like GPT-4 use great, huge quantities of these most advanced chips in order to run all that processing power for a million users at a time. And and there's device proliferation and there's so there's no way chips are doing anything but going up into the right over the long term. So if markets are short-sighted enough to dump them in a given quarter, awesome, that's my time to shine. I'm going to buy them up and wait for that compounding into the future because it's happening. Man, Garvin, this was awesome. Let's let's try and make sure we don't have three years in between uh, our, our our respective conversations because I just I I really loved our conversation here today. So with that, where could our audience go and find more information? Follow you on social media as well as uh, on Green Alpha Advisors. Yeah, uh, Green Alpha is on LinkedIn and we're on Twitter, but that's it. Those are our only social media uh, presences. We might, we might try Blue Sky, but we haven't been invited yet. <laughs> and uh, I'm on Twitter personally at Garvin1313. Uh, I don't tweet that much, but from time to time I do. GreenAlphaAdvisors.com uh, is our website. You can see all of our all of our strategies there. I would particularly want to just be shameless as heck and uh, pimp our ETF and XTE. That is the Access Green Alpha ETF, uh, like November X-Ray Tango Echo. And then... Uh, Something that we've done, uh, Bobby, since last time we talked is uh, worked with our good friends at Uniplan Investment Council to uh, launch a sustainable income fund. And that's the Access Sustainable Income Fund. Its sticker is A-X-S-K-X, like Alpha X-Ray Sierra, Kilo X-Ray. And it, this, and, and I want to mention that fund, one, because it's new and we're, and we're really trying to get it going. Uh, but secondly, because it's been hard to find a good, there's some, there's some ESG you know, again, whatever that means to a given manager. Uh, there are some ESG fixed income funds, but there isn't really a good a sustainability impact one. And we think we're, we're offering that. And then also, uh, uniquely in my career, which, you know, I'm 55 now, so that's been going on for a minute. <laughs> uh, uh, this is a time where, where there's this total return opportunity to high yield bonds it, that has rarely been better. So right now, it's rare to have an opportunity. The opportunity that we have now just doesn't come along that much. So if you were to buy our sustainable income fund uh, now, you know, you're locking in a, a four to six percent income stream, but it's even more, which is rare and hard to do, like fixed income. Um, but but also it's even more rare to get that with an opportunity with for for price appreciation, which with yield curves now flattening out, we may very well have in bonds. So that's really interesting. It, uh, I'm actually I've always been a I've always been a uh, uh, an equities guy. I'm an equities manager. But um, this is this is one of the, the few times in my career when fixed income has looked interesting to me. If I can lock in 5% and also have a great shot at price appreciation, I love it right now. And it's also uh, a, a little bit more of a, uh, of a safe haven than equities uh, right now. Like we were mentioning, I, I don't know how many people have told me recently uh, that, that they're in more cash than they've ever been and they're kind of trying to time their return. Well, fixed income is a good way to do that. So the Access Sustainable Income Fund, which we manage, uh, along with Uniplan Investment Council is my other pitch. Uh, and that's, I guess that's it. Very good. Well, Garvin, thank you again for joining me today. Really do appreciate it. Good luck, stay safe. And I really look forward to our next update. Yeah, me too, Bobby. Thank you for the invite. I, I love chatting with you. Same here. Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Yes.